Welcome to another edition of Focus on the Kingdom. This is Anthony Buzzard inviting you again to search the Scriptures with us for a few moments as we continue with our investigation of the most fundamental of all questions in the Bible, the Gospel, and the Gospel as Jesus preached it, what he called the Gospel about the Kingdom of God. We've been pointing out that in Luke 8 and verse 12, and in Matthew 13 and verse 19, Jesus made acceptance of his message, his gospel about the kingdom, the essential first step in intelligent discipleship. Jesus placed before his audiences the prospect of the coming of the kingdom of God in the future. He announced in advance a great world event, that event by which God will intervene decisively and finally and forever to change the course of human affairs and to establish fair government on our earth. The kingdom of God was a well-known phrase amongst Jesus' contemporaries. It described that time coming when world affairs would be radically altered. It defined the day of the Lord, that day when God would intervene to place government in the hands of the Messiah and to banish man-made governments in opposition to himself. It was to that day that Jesus invited his audiences to pay attention with all urgency when he commanded them to repent and believe in the good news of the kingdom. Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. We were pointing out also that Satan is a great counterfeiter. He is a pseudo-evangelist and he comes with a pseudo-gospel. This is what Jesus warned. The enemy, he said, the devil sowed tares in the field. Matthew 13, verses 25, 38, and 39. Jesus had earlier been talking about his own gospel as a sowing of good seed in the heart of individuals. And that good seed is defined with absolute clarity for us in Matthew 13, 19. It's the seed of the message of the kingdom. It is that good seed, Jesus said, which must lodge in the heart of the believer in order that the process which leads to immortality may start. Jesus, you see, was in the business of creating immortal persons, and that progress towards immortality must have a beginning. It begins with the rebirth experience. And how does one become reborn? By accepting the seed of new life contained in the message about the kingdom of God, Matthew 13, verse 19, and we compare with it Luke 8, verse 12, because that verse tells us what the devil is up to. He is bent on destroying and suppressing, jamming and blocking at every point the precious message of the kingdom of God, the precious seed of immortality, that spark of new life which we must receive in order to gain immortality and live forever in the future kingdom of God. The devil is busy sowing his pseudo-gospel, Jesus said in Matthew 13, verses 25, 38, and 39. According to the marginal note in the New American Standard Version, the tares which the devil is busy sowing resemble the good wheat that is the product of Jesus' message. And the tares, of course, are the product of the phony and counterfeit message of the devil. Now, Satan's evangelistic effort, according to Jesus, parodies and mimics the evangelistic activity of Jesus. And Satan, too, makes his converts. 
and on a large scale, one would think, judging by John's remark that, and I quote, the whole world lies in Satan's power. You'll find that in 1 John 5 and verse 19, and you should compare with it Revelation 12 verse 9 and 2 Corinthians 4 verse 4. Those three verses, 1 John 5, 19, Revelation 12, 9, and 2 Corinthians 4, 4, give us a clear picture of the blanket coverage which Satan now enjoys in his deceptive exercise as he foists his pseudo-gospel upon an unsuspecting world. Now, our task as Christians is to exercise and develop discernment to distinguish the true from the false, the genuine from the counterfeit. Now, all this demands effort and study on our part. That's why the Bereans in Acts 17 and verse 11 were commended for their faithful daily examination of the Scriptures to see if what they were hearing was true. By prayer and study, we must desire to know the truth and not to be taken in by the lie. We must develop a love of the truth to be saved. That's what Paul said in 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 10, a most precious verse. We are to have a love for the truth, Paul said, in order to be saved, in order, in other words, not to be deceived and taken in by the pseudo-gospel of the devil. The great Christian virtue of love is characterized by its joy at the truth. 1 Corinthians 13, verse 6. One of the outstanding qualities of genuine Christian love is that it rejoices in the truth. And another verse, of course, says that Christians are to speak the truth in love. But 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 10 should be a fridge verse, one posted in a prominent position in your house. We are to develop a love and a passion for truth, Paul said, in order to be saved. 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 10. Unfortunately, many churchgoers do not give themselves wholeheartedly to the pursuit of truth in the Bible. They seem to be content to believe whatever they're told, without much energy going into a personal study and examination of the Scriptures daily to see if what they are hearing is actually in line with God's Word, God's revelation. Acts 17, verse 11 is a principal and primary verse for all of us it urges us to be personal Bereans, personal students of the Scripture, analyzing, sifting, weighing, and judging what we hear in order that we can discern between what is true and what is false. Many churchgoers apparently exhibit very little of that spirit of the Bereans who searched the Scriptures daily to see if what Paul was saying was true. As a result of that exercise, that Berean exercise of daily examination, and analysis of the Scriptures, many became genuine believers, Luke tells us in Acts chapter 17. What we need everywhere in churches is a revival of interest in the parable of the sower, or the seeds, or the soil, in Matthew 13, Luke 8, and Mark 4. We need to define the gospel from the very words of Jesus himself. Jesus himself said that this parable, this parable of the soils, provides the key to understanding all the parables. You'll find that statement in Mark 4, verse 13. Jesus there said that if you cannot understand the parable of the seeds or the soils, then how can you understand any of the parables? It seems to have a foundational place in Jesus' teaching. Its great importance lies in its description 
of the genuine conversion experience, it shows what Jesus preached as the gospel. We learn from him there in that parable of the seed or the soils that conversion is based on acceptance of the gospel about the kingdom and no other gospel. Now, if that's true, it's obvious that we must define the kingdom of God. It is simply this. God is going to send his son back to rule the world. Jesus is to be the first world governor, or at least the first successful world governor. To be converted and saved, you must begin by believing that stupendous fact. The good news about the kingdom allows you to know what God is planning to do. Jesus' first command to us is to repent and believe in God's kingdom plan. Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. Now, in that future kingdom, there's going to be universal peace on the earth. Isaiah chapter 2, verses 1 to 4. And Jesus will be here, back on this earth, with us to bring this universal peace about. He offers his followers in the gospel of the kingdom a share in that coming rule on the earth. You will find that share in the rule, the coming rule of Jesus on the earth, that co-regency with Jesus described clearly in Luke 22, verses 28 to 30. There Jesus spoke of a time coming when the apostles would occupy twelve thrones to administer the regathered tribes of Israel. That, of course, is a very earthly scene. The kingdom of God in the Bible is never described as being located in some distant super-celestial region far removed from the planet. On the contrary, Jesus said to his disciples, Blessed are the meek, they're going to receive the earth as their inheritance. Matthew 5, verse 5. Jesus, of course, urges us to pray for that great day of the kingdom to come. Thy kingdom come. May your kingdom begin. That's what Jesus asks us to pray in Matthew 6, verse 10. Abraham and Isaac and Jacob will awake at that time from the sleep of death to take part in the future kingdom. You'll find that in Daniel 12, verse 2, where we read that many of those who are sleeping in the dust of the ground will arise or awaken in resurrection. And Luke 13, verses 28 and 29, describes that future time when Abraham and Isaac and Jacob will come back from death, from the sleep of death, and live in the future kingdom, indeed will rule with Christ in that kingdom. The kingdom is going to arrive at the end of the age, Jesus said, following a series of cataclysmic events. You'll find that in Luke 21, verse 31. Now, the kingdom of God is going to supersede all existing national governments. Daniel 2, verse 44 says it plainly. In the days of those kings, and we're referring there to pagan empires now established on the earth, in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up his kingdom, and that kingdom will be a permanent kingdom. It will last forever. Daniel 2, verse 44. In Daniel 7, in verses 14, 22, and 27, you'll find that that very same kingdom is to be put into the hands of Jesus as the Son of God, and he will share it with others, the saints, the faithful of all the ages. According to Daniel 7, verse 27, the saints are destined to be the co-rulers with Jesus in the kingdom of God, which is described there as coming under the whole heaven, that's to say, on the earth. Now, the power to rule over the world will be given to Christ and to you if you will accept the message of the kingdom and act on it, of course, for the rest of your life. 
And that entails repentance, changing your style of life, entirely changing your thinking, being baptized as a responsible, intelligent adult, and accepting the message of the kingdom in the name of Jesus Christ. If you want a key verse in that regard, look at Acts 8, verse 12. When they believed Philip preaching or proclaiming the gospel about the kingdom, they were getting baptized, both men and women. Now that verse in Acts 8, verse 12, is a kind of early creed, showing the simplicity with which the gospel was presented. Now the gospel throughout the New Testament is a kind of two-phased message. It has two prongs to it. The first item on the agenda of the gospel is the kingdom of God, because that's where Jesus always began his preaching. And Hebrews 2 verse 3 clearly says that the gospel began to be preached by Jesus. Actually, of course, John the Baptist preached the gospel before Jesus, but he and John, Jesus and John together, preached the same gospel. And so beginning with the kingdom of God, that naturally then becomes the first item in the preaching schedule of the apostles. That's why in Acts 8.12, Philip was preaching the gospel about the kingdom, and in addition, the things concerning the name of Jesus Christ, that's to say, his death for our sins, his resurrection, and so on, and the need for Christian living, the need to follow the apostolic teaching closely, and to conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of God, who, as Paul said to the Thessalonians, is calling us into his kingdom and glory. We invite you to request from us our free book on the kingdom of God and join us again as we continue with our investigation of Jesus' favorite topic, the gospel about the kingdom of God.